Hey everybody, it's Tommy Canelli and welcome to Before the Lights Podcast. The show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. Today, we have a coach, reporter, he's a consultant, a former newsman, an award-winning editor and columnist. He's the author of several books that include Forbidden Fruit, which has mobsters, hookers, murder, dirty cops, and dice. He's the owner of Chili Dog Press, a publisher and a writer. He was the host of TV news shows, a local historian in the Ohio area, and an East Lansing, Michigan native. Please welcome to the show, Peter Bronson. Peter, welcome to Before the Lights. Glad to be here with you, Tommy. Let's kick it off here, Peter. Your love of books started age seven when your mom could not afford to fix the TV, so she took you to the library. What do you recall about walking into that library the very first time? I hated it. (laughs) I just wanted to go back to my after-school cartoons of Three Stooges. I did not want to read a book. Was there a certain book then that hooked you into becoming a love of reading and writing? Well, uh, I just remember the first book was something about spies in the Revolutionary War, and it was written for my age level, which at the time would have been third grade. And uh, so it really hooked me. It was very exciting. And whoever did that book, I thank you and my hat's off to them because they hooked me on reading. You began writing in the fifth grade. And when did you know that you wanted to turn this into, well, you're reading and writing into a career and be an author? Well, I started doing uh, newspapers and stories uh, in sixth grade. I I tried to start a a grade school newspaper, which was unheard of then and now, I imagine. And uh, I was writing stories at the time that I was hoping would turn into a book, which I've never gone back to read, but I'm sure they'd be quite a source of amusement now. Then I became uh, editor of my high school paper. I worked at my college paper at Michigan State University. So all along, reading gave me such a a fascination and love of writing that I wanted to participate. I didn't want to just be a spectator of, of good literature and reporting. I wanted to be in the game, and I wanted to create my own stories. How did Ernest Hemingway have an effect on you and get you into college? Well, I really liked uh, his books and his stories. Uh, One of my favorite uh, books by him was uh, known as Up in Michigan, a collection of stories about his family's place up in northern Michigan, where I used to go up on vacations quite a bit. So I knew the area and I I just loved his style. He had this great way of um, making his life being into an adventure and then turning that adventure into books and literature that we all could share. And, and even today, when I go back and read his, his writing, I'm really um, kind of blown away by it. It's just really good. I would agree with you there. You mentioned that you attended Michigan State University. And in your previous job description, I should say, you've worked as a busboy, a bartender, a car valet, a pizza chef, a construction laborer, and a snowplow driver. Outside of hard work, which all those positions are, what, if anything, did those jobs teach you that you're still using today? They taught me that everybody has a role to play and that 
we all need to respect each other and the work we do, especially those of us who are contributing, uh, like the people did that I worked alongside. They may have been dads who were taking a, on an extra job to pay for their kids' schooling, or they were guys like me in my age group and and uh, at all levels and all backgrounds. I just learned that the people, uh, the working what we commonly refer to in this country as the working class or the blue collar class doesn't really get a lot of respect from the, the what I call the mainstream media or uh, newspapers and the people that most of the people I worked with in the newsroom did not have this kind of background. And it was uh, very evident in the way they treated people from uh, more humble backgrounds, people who earned their money with their, their sweat and, uh, and their bodies and, and just hard work. So I have an abiding respect for people who are on their feet all day, maybe waiting tables, who operate that Bobcat or front-end motor that you see on uh, highway projects. And, and I just, I've done some of that. I know how hard it is, and I'm very grateful that I'm no longer doing that. <laughs> In 2003, you started Chili Dog Press LLC, which is named after a Labrador that you had but Peter, what made you decide to go out on your own? Well, um, I was working at the newspaper as a columnist at the time at the Cincinnati Inquirer. And as the staff cuts kept getting closer and closer, you know, newspapers at that time, it still were uh, imploding, especially on uh, Metro papers. And uh, we had staff cuts coming Oh, gosh, about every three or four months. And it felt like everybody was looking over their shoulders, waiting for the axe to fall. So uh, one of my good friends uh, was ready to bail out. And he said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I think I'll just ride this thing into the crater. <laughs> and sure enough, in the next round, I was targeted. So that was the beginning of my branching, uh, branching out on my own to uh, – start a publishing company. I didn't know it at the time because I had published one book while working at the newspaper through Chili Dog Press. And it really kind of snowballed from there with people asking me, how did you do that? Uh, can you help me do my book? And it turns out that uh, every day we're among dozens of people probably who have dreams of writing a book and just don't talk about it. Uh, and they're, they're all around us. Uh, you may be one of them, uh, Tommy, I don't know, but there are people all over the place who, who have book projects that they'd love to write. And, and I just really get a kick out of helping people do that. For those listeners that may or want to write a book, Chili Dog Press offers custom publishing from idea to the actual book. Peter can help you with coaching, editing, book design, marketing, and a whole lot more. Peter, what are the struggles of writing books and then actually getting them published? Well, the publishing industry is really going through a huge uh, overhaul, a lot like what happened with newspapers. There used to be a cartel of uh, publishing that they controlled everything and they had the gateway and the firewall so that you could not get into bookstores, for example, if you didn't go through the big publishers and their distributors. Nowadays, however, the boutique or independent publishers like my company uh, make it possible primarily because of Amazon and what they've done to shake up that whole industry. Mm -hmm. We make it possible for people to put a book out there and to get into local bookstores and nationally 
And uh, there's no discernible difference from the book that I publish or the book that comes out of one of the big publishing houses in New York, except for the fact that they take 90% of your intellectual profits and I give you 90% of your intellectual profits. So your property is yours, not theirs. You also maintain complete control, editorial control of your story, which with the big publishing or any publishing company in the traditional model, they will take it over and tell you what it's going to be like. Huge difference. Big difference. Listeners, go to the show notes. I'm going to put a link to Chili Dog Press LLC where you can get your hands on all of Peter's publications and books. We're going to talk about some of them now. First off, in 2003, Cincinnati for Pete's sake, a collection of your work that includes humor, life lessons, opinions with bonus Christmas stories. How is this book doing to this day? I still get orders from time to time. It did very well at first. That was published uh, a long time ago. That was my first book. And as a columnist, I, I often got what we called the prestigious refrigerator award where somebody would tell you that they were taking your column and clipping it out of the newspaper and they put it on the refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> and so if I had the refrigerator award, that was much more uh, rewarding to me than uh, one of these press club uh, awards that are voted on by your colleagues and they're passed around, and uh, which is kind of silly, actually. But um, the, so I, I decided at some point, heck, I'm just going to collect a bunch of these that people like best and I'll put them all together in a book. And um, it's still, uh, I still get calls from people and people ask me about it when I do book signings and I still sell. 2006, Behind the Lines, The Untold Story of the Cincinnati Riots. It was a local bestseller. In April of 2001, a riot started to a police shooting in an alley and then it ended on Good Friday. Peter, I want to get into a couple things on this book. First off, what was the untold story and were the police blamed at first? The police were blamed not only at first, but, you know, they say uh, journalism is the first draft of history. And it's extremely hard to change that once it's been carved into stone in the, in the headlines. So the police were demonized over this. It was very much like what we see today. In fact, this was kind of the early previews of what's happening now with uh, the uh, police defund the police projects and, and marginalizing my police friends tell me that it's a horrible time to be a cop. It's uh, morale could never be lower. They feel like they're not supported. Their political leaders do not have their back. One small mistake in their career is destroyed. So what happened was my own newspaper, the inquirer had done a lot in my opinion to create that uh, atmosphere of disrespect for law enforcement. And that snowballed and it finally turned into uh, riots in the streets. Uh, Stores were set on fire. People were dragged from their cars and beaten within an inch of their lives. And this, these were race riots. They were, they were not indiscriminate. They were targeting white people. Uh, Crowds of black kids and, and young men were, were perpetrating these acts of violence. And yet our newspaper and all of the media was focusing entirely on what they called unjustified use of force and the victim of the, the young black man who was killed in a shooting. So I went back five years later and circled back and talked to the police who were in the front lines of that. And the stories they told me were completely different from what we had been reading in the media for the past five years. I mean, we, we circled, for example, 
the the national story that left Cincinnati was that 15 young black men had been killed in police custody by Cincinnati police. It was flat untrue. Mm. Of those, uh, virtually none of them were in custody. They were all resisting arrest. So that part of it falls apart. The next part is that some of them had guns and were actively shooting at police. Another had a board with nails in it that he was swinging at police. One was threatening police with a brick that he was going to use to break somebody's skull. So in all of these cases, when you looked at them and circled back and looked more carefully, they just didn't withstand scrutiny, but it was all part of an agenda that was very popular at the time and remains popular in the, the media to push uh, social justice as um, a part of a problem that is known as police oppression, which I just don't buy. You answered my other question I was going to ask you and how it related to today's police and what's happening in our society. And I just thought that was a great correlation of something that, you know, happened 20 years ago. We're still seeing some of these effects today, but even worse. Yes, absolutely. When you see what happened in Ferguson, when you see what happened with the George Floyd case, I mean, these things have been, these used to be local stories that have become nationalized and then exploited and weaponized by people with agendas to divide us, to demonize the police, to defund the police, to in fact undermine the social fabric so that we no longer have the comfort of knowing that the law enforcement officers are out there doing their job. Uh, in many cases, we're seeing mass resignations in these cities by law enforcement officers. Police are, are deciding to leave, especially if they're close to retirement. We're seeing this all over the country. And, and this, to me, a lot of this goes right back at the feet of our media. And uh, I, I have to admit, I wasn't very popular in our newsroom for calling out these things. But uh, I thought it was a responsibility to give people two sides of the story, not just one. Glad you did. Let's jump you. to your book this year from Northern Kentucky, Forbidden Fruit, Sin Cities, Underworld, and the Supper Club Inferno about the violent history of Newport in Northern Kentucky, which is Vegas on the Ohio River. Dive into this because I know my listeners get into mob stuff and all this corruption. So, Peter, I have a lot of questions. Let's start here and then we'll kind of lead through it. What attracted you to this subject, first of all? Well, when I came to Cincinnati in uh, 1992, um, one of the, whenever you go to a new newsroom, there are always certain stories that are held up above the rest. Like, this is the big one. This is the Moby Dick of all the stories in our, in our ocean of stories at this newspaper. And the, new, the, the big story in Cincinnati has always been the Beverly Hills Supper Club fire of 1977, that killed 165 people. It was the showplace, showplace of the nation. All of the, the glitzy stars that you know so well from your background in Vegas performed at the Beverly Hills. Uh, it was just a, really a jewel in the crown of our region. And when it burned on a Memorial Day weekend, uh, packed full of people uh, going to see John Davidson, if you remember him from Hollywood Squares, um, it, it was just such a tragedy that even today, when I go into any crowd of 10 or 15 people, about half or a third of them will have some kind of direct contact or memory of that night. They all know where they were when they heard about it. They had neighbors, friends, loved ones, sisters, brothers, 
moms and dads, cousins who were there that night or who barely survived or did not. It, it's amazing how that can have such a huge effect on a community, but it still lingers. I set out to write that story and investigate it. I'd often heard that there were some suspicions around that. Did it really, was it really an accident as the, the, the official story claimed? There's never been an official determination, by the way. Despite multiple investigations, it remains unsolved. And many people that worked there had assembled evidence over the years that is persuasive and very strong that it was, in fact, an arson. So I, I went back to look at that. And when I did, uh, I often liken this project to opening a door and, open, and every door you open, you find three more doors. Mm-hmm. Right. So it just got going and going and and. From there, well, let's get back to your questions. I know you have them. You said in 77 it was the Beverly Hills Supper Club, which was the Beverly Hills Country Club, which also burned in 1970. It was set on fire. It was the worst fire in U.S. history. As you mentioned, there was big-time names that used to go to the Beverly Hills Supper Club, such as Sinatra, Marilyn, Dean Martin, and others. The fire started in the Zebra Room. The evidence that could have been there was destroyed and covered up. When was it destroyed and why do you think it was covered up? It was covered up the next day. The next day. uh, I have pictures. Yes. I have pictures in my book of a clamshell crane targeting specifically that room in the front of the, the club while the rest of it remains burned but standing. It was no question that was the first target of destroying evidence. And I also interviewed an assistant fire marshal who said he was on the scene that morning in the early hours while the fire was still burning. And when the governor arrived, he told the governor he wanted to declare it a crime scene so they could investigate possible arson. And the governor told him basically, shut up, get out of the way. I'm turning this over to the state police. Wow. And later, through my research, I determined that the governor, the uh, leader of the state police, and others on his five-person commission to investigate were egregiously corrupt. So it, it makes it really suspicious. First of all, destroying evidence. You have plenty of people, uh, witnesses that I interviewed, who saw various evidence that there was arson, including people working in the ceiling of the zebra room the day before the fire and doing things that they said they were working on air conditioning where the room was not air conditioned. Uh, They were very um, threatening and uh, nasty looking people. And they scared some of these people who worked at the club that day. They also saw people in the club, uh, according to three or four different witnesses I talked to, who were wiping down walls with some kind of a chemical which uh, we now, looking back, really seems strongly, uh, strong evidence that, that was probably an accelerant. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can see pictures that the state police concealed for years that were finally pried loose in a lawsuit that show evidence of some kind of an explosion and intense heat in the lower level of the basement below the zebra room, whereas the official version of the state police report for years insisted there was no evidence of a fire down there. So again and again, there's just so much evidence. And I want to kind of go back before then, because there's been history of arson on that property that dates back as far as 1936. A five-year-old girl had been killed as well. 
the mob has had their hands pretty much in everything in that area. And there were nightclub fires in Northern Kentucky every year from 1970 through 1977. Were those all arson as well, Peter? Um, The best I can determine is that the the local fire officials and police said they believed all were arson, but they couldn't prove it unless they saw somebody running from the building with a can of gas. They, they found that evidence, uh, they found evidence of accelerants used in most of those fires. They, uh, there was, it was so common that people uh, said that you could always tell when a club was going to burn down because the odor would be there the night before removing all the liquor. <laughs> So, so they were getting the good stuff out. And usually this was the mob uh, taking over or getting rid of the competition because the mob still owned and ran so many clubs in northern Kentucky. And the mob has been known to firebomb many things, buildings, cars, you name it, back in those days. My question is, it's not like the mob to blow up a building during operating hours and kill 165 people that are just there enjoying an evening. Why wasn't this bomb during the overnight when it was closed? That's you put your finger on one of the theories that a lot of people who have been investigating this came up with, which is that the timer was wrong. They had a timed uh, detonation and that it was set for 5 a.m., which would have been when the club was empty. And that instead it went off around 5 or 5.30 p.m., just as the club was filling up. And this was a slow burn intended to set a fire in the ceiling above the zebra room, which would then spread throughout the club, thanks to the accelerant. Mm -hmm. The Cleveland Four mob had moved into Newport, which was led by boss Mo Dalitz. And for my listeners that have heard all the other podcasts I've done that are mob-related, probably know who Mo Dalitz is. For those of you that don't, Mo Dalitz basically became Mr. Las Vegas at one point in time and Desert Inn started and had a big influence in Las Vegas, including building Las Vegas Country Club. But Peter, what do you know about Mo Dalitz back in the day when he was with the Cleveland Four? Well, he got his start in the Purple Gang in Detroit. He was not a hard luck guy. His family had a very successful laundry in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which uh, basically had the contract for all the laundry at the University of Michigan, which would be very lucrative. So he didn't need to go into organized crime but he did, and he was a very ruthless and tough mobster. He was the boss of the Cleveland Four, which included uh, Lou Rothkopf, Morris Kleiman, and Sam Tucker as well, which are names that may have come up with you before. Uh, Mo was, uh, was a very dangerous guy, but very smart, too. When other mobsters made the mistake of uh, going into the Kefauver hearings unprepared, Mo made sure that he had an excuse so he didn't have to uh, comply with the subpoena. And as he watched them make fools of themselves and embarrass themselves, he learned from that. So his appearance when he was on TV, he was very charming. He joked. He had the reporters laughing. He actually had them laughing at the expense of the Kefauver senators. And But he, he it was all part of his strategy to become what was later dubbed the silent syndicate. The Cleveland Four was as powerful as Kansas City's mob or Miami's or any of the big ones, but it was quiet. It was always in the background. So when Mo went out to Vegas, as you mentioned, 
he went out there and uh, Wilbur Clark was trying to finish the Desert Inn, but he was running into money troubles. And Moe started loaning him money and got his hooks in, basically then muscled him out and took over 83% of the Desert Inn. And that's when he started shifting operations out there. But he later said, everything I needed to know about doing the casino business in Las Vegas was what I learned at the Beverly Hills Country Club in Newport, in Southgate, Northern Kentucky. All right. So my, can, or my question is this. We've talked about Northern Kentucky and this Cleveland mob. Where does this correlation get to Cincinnati? And after you explain that, does this connection have any ties or effect on the national mob scene? Absolutely, on, on both counts. Um, Cincinnati is right across the river from Newport. So Cincinnati was very tough. They had, uh, for example, one of their top detectives was known as Machine Gun Melvin, and he was known for uh, using his Tommy gun to great effect uh, on any mobsters who got brave enough to come across the river from Kentucky. So they kept it very clean on the Cincinnati side of the river, but they also had it both ways. So they would lure conventions to Cincinnati um, and tell everybody, oh, it's a really clean city. We don't have any of those problems, but nudge, nudge, give you the elbow. If you do want to have fun, just go south of the river into Newport, which is just over the bridge. It was so blatant that the taxis that would pick people up at the Cincinnati hotels had the names of brothels in the windows, prices, clubs. The taxi drivers were taking a bribe to take people to specific brothels and casinos and bust out joints. So it, it was really kind of uh, the Chamber of Commerce is telling you one story and then the uh, what, what's actually going on is something quite different. <laughs> now, as far as the... The connection to the national mob. So Dutch Schultz was actually running the Coney Island racetrack on the Cincinnati side of the river when Mo Dallas came down. And Dutch Schultz, as you know from your, your mob history, because you're really good at this, uh, was uh, basically rubbed out by the mob when he got crossways with the big leaders. And they had a council and they said, let's take him out. And they did. And uh, so Mo Dallas, who had been given the franchise for the Midwest at their mob summit in Atlantic City. Uh, he moved down through Ohio and then into northern Kentucky. The reason this was such a prime location is because the king of the bootleggers, George Remus, had bought up everybody on the Kentucky side of the river. It was a lot easier to, to bribe and buy the politicians and law enforcement people in these little towns than to try and take Cincinnati in one bite. So they already knew that when George Remus went to prison, that it wouldn't be hard to, uh, they had plenty of corrupt people down there that they could pay and they moved in big time. Let's talk about Sheriff George Ratterman in 1961. He was a quarterback star at Notre Dame and played in the NFL for the New York Giants. He went to war against the mob with Attorney General Bobby Kennedy. How was George Ratterman attempted to be set up? Well, that's a great story by itself, Tommy. George Ratterman was such a great athlete. His coach at Notre Dame, Frank Leahy, said he was the best athlete he ever coached. And that's while George was playing on the same team with Johnny Lujak, who was a Heisman Trophy winner. So George was something. He was all-American guy, uh, clean-cut, handsome, could play baseball, you name it. Basketball, he was great. So he finished his NFL career and did some announcing for television for a little while. Then he came back to, to Fort Thomas 
in northern Kentucky, and his neighbors were all up in arms with something called the Committee of 500, which was a reform group to try and push gambling, prostitution, and organized crime out of their neighborhoods. Now, remember, this was so wild at the time that a, a reporter counted 300 prostitutes, hookers in one mile of northern Kentucky streets. So this was out of control. There were gambling clubs in every every bar, every cafe, every you could bet on the anything you wanted in, in Newport. It also had become the national wire betting hub uh, for the mob. So Newport, with only 30,000 people in 1957, was taking a, an annual handle of $30 million, which think about that in today's dollars, that's about $300 million Wow! in this little tiny town. So this was a really important part of the mob's network. Uh, I listened to your interview with um, reporter Larry. Oh, Larry Henry, yes. Larry Henry. And he was talking about Little Rock mm-hmm. and, um, and Hot Springs. Yes. Well, Hot Springs was kind of like Newport, except that Newport also had this extra um, added uh, income capacity as the wire betting hub. And even today, if you go into the old bars, I was just in one the other day, which is now an antique shop. It used to be the Mustang bar. In the basement there, they still have 200 phone lines for an wow. antique shop. Yeah. So they were taking bets from everywhere. So to put this in the national perspective, Mo Dallas, at the time that he was doing this in the Beverly Hills Country Club, he was also sharing casinos with Meyer Lansky in Havana. He had Frank Costello sharing a piece of the Beverly Hills Country Club in Newport or Southgate. He had all of the national um, Chicago's uh, Levinson brothers were there running the casinos. So it was just a wide open city. The Cleveland mob controlled, I would guess, uh, 70 percent of the the really high income properties. But nonetheless, they were generous enough. There was so much to be had. They were generous enough to to share that with some of the other mob families and organizations around the country. Okay, let's let's back up. So how did George get it set up? So George decides to, yeah, I did wander a bit there, sorry. So George decides to uh, run, his neighbors talk him into running for sheriff as the reform candidate. And uh, that really made some of the mobsters nervous. At this time, uh, the big big mobsters, Moe and his gang, the Cleveland Four, had already moved out to the desert end. But they had a lot of smaller time mobsters. So one named Screw Andrews was probably the big boss. And another named Tito Corinzi, who ran the Tropicana, uh, was a smaller time guy. He was a uh, linebacker in college. And here's George, the quarterback. So it was almost uh, you couldn't write this if it was a script. But he decides to frame up George Radman by putting him upstairs. First, they slipped him some knockout props and they put him upstairs in, at the Tropicana in bed with a uh, stripper whose name was April Flowers, stage name. <laughs> Real name Juanita Hodges. So they they uh, had the police who were waiting by, standing by at the phone to show up and, and arrest George without his pants on, wrap him in a blanket, and haul him out of there with this stripper in her G-string. And uh, they take him to the jail, and this is going to kill the reform candidacy of George Raderman. Well, one problem was George had an immediate blood test, and it showed massive amounts of chloral hydrate in his blood. And the whole thing backfired. 
And in fact, it became such a big story. It was around the world. Even newspapers in Japan were publishing headlines about this amazing uh, frame up with April flowers in the upper room at the Tropicana and all this stuff. So Bobby Kennedy, who was the new attorney general appointed by his brother, Jack, he, um, he saw this headline and said, aha, here's my chance. And I think you probably know a lot about uh, Bobby Kennedy's background. He was a ruthless enemy of Jimmy Hoffa. Yep. And he hated the mob, despite his own family's connections. And he decided this would be the place where he would go to war against the mob. And he chose Newport, Kentucky. And uh, that was also their, their wire betting hub, one of the most lucrative regions in the country. And sure enough, uh, he went to war on them. He sent one of his chief deputies with a blank check to prosecute these mobsters on behalf of George Radiman's civil rights. And they eventually prevailed. So let me, let me see if I can connect some dots here. Could it be said then that the attempted botched setup of Sheriff George Radiman connects to Attorney General Bobby Kennedy, who goes to war against the mob and that could connect to having an effect for JFK's assassination. Absolutely. This was one of those doors that shocked me. I did an FOI request, Freedom of Information Act, with the FBI files that are now declassified. And I obtained a lot of, uh, well, three CDs packed with uh, transcripts. And many of those transcripts, of memos and FBI documents were wiretaps that Bobby Kennedy illegally unconstitutional wiretaps of Moe's friends uh, sitting at the desert Inn plotting uh, various mafia activities. And in these things, they're talking about trying to get even with the Kennedys. Uh, we have wiretaps of them talking about uh, how these guys ought to be killed. Um, there's a vendetta because Sam Giancana Felt totally double-crossed, you know, it was legendary about Sam Giancana bragging about how he delivered the election to uh, Jack Kennedy for Joe, mm -hmm. his father, who was an old-time book bootlegger. And uh, so you have all these things. And then if you go even farther into the National Archives and you check out some of the documents that have been released, it's amazing what a whitewash to cover up the Warren Commission was. There were massive or very obvious and plain connections between Lee Harvey Oswald and organized crime. There are, of course, we know that there were organized crime connections with Jack Ruby. We also know that in some of these tapes that they, they had, Jimmy Hoffa even suggested that the, one of the Kennedys, they said Jack was probably the better target because if you kill Bobby, Jack's going to come after you with all the power of the president. So you cut off the head mm -hmm. and the rest dies. Well, anyway, Jimmy Hoffa even was uh, caught on tape and by uh, informants saying that he wanted to kill one of the Kennedys uh, with a sniper in an open car in a southern city. How long did it take you to do research for this book? About a year. I'm guessing and assuming that you got a whole lot more than you anticipated when you started this project. Oh, absolutely. It was it was so much fun. I almost didn't want to turn it loose because there would just seem like every time I'd open a door, more doors. So you'd open that door. And then all of a sudden I find myself getting into this Kennedy plots. And I'm like, I never started out to write a book that involves another 
uh, examination of the Kennedy assassination, because as you know, there are whole libraries that could be filled with those books. Yeah. But it was just irresistible. And the FBI uh, documents that I was able to obtain were so surprising to me and shocking. And it was also um, very eye-opening. I mean, I'm, I'm no um, Pollyanna. I've been in the news business all my life. And yet even I wasn't cynical enough to see how much the government lied to us in the Warren Commission, for example, or to see what the FBI and the CIA were doing in domestic politics in those years. It's it's just shocking and makes you very cynical. Peter, what's on the land these days where the Beverly Hills Supper Club stood in 1977? Well, a project is underway to develop a mixed use uh, community, a, a development that would include some assisted living and then other housing that would surround that. There was quite a battle uh, over this, but uh, most people have come to peace, I think, now with uh, 40 some four decades of time has passed now. And um, and I think people are fairly comfortable with the fact that it's finally being used. It, up until the recent development, you could almost anybody that wanted to could go up there. You're not supposed to. It's supposedly uh, no trespassing. But uh, you could go up there and wander the property. And there were signs that were put up. There were uh, showing you where various rooms were, where people died. There were really odd things would come breaking up through the surface in the springtime because of the frost heaves, such as glassware, shoes, pieces of kitchen equipment, just weird stuff. And uh, it was kind of a creepy place. So now the uh, it's going to be developed and they're going to devote part of the property to a memorial for those 165 victims. Listeners, go to ChiliDogPress.com. You can get an autographed copy from Peter on the book, Forbidden Fruit. As we've already talked about, it has the mob. It has corruptions, corrupt politicians. It goes as high up as the FBI and the White House. So get your hands on Forbidden Fruit. Go to ChiliDogPress.com, and you can also go to the show notes to get a link as well. Peter, on that website of Chili Dog Press, one thing I found really interesting is your team. Your team is basically you. And a client, which I thought was really cool. <laughs> yeah, I like to joke about that. I said, you know, we had a, a meeting of the board of directors, me, and <laughs> we, meaning me, decided we're going to give Christmas bonuses to our, our favorite employee, me. <laughs> and uh, when my wife or my son helped me with uh, shipping or packaging or shit or any of the you know things that we do here, then I have uh, an annual employee appreciation dinner where we take them out for steak. (laughs) (laughs) What have you learned since starting Chili Dog Press back in 2003? Well, I've, I've learned a lot about uh, people's dreams and what, how, how happy it can make somebody to have a book on their shelf with their name on it. Uh, Also, we've had some very successful books, uh, I don't want to give the impression that uh, most people are writing these books just for their personal satisfaction or ego. We've had three or four or five, six books that are really doing well um, and uh, very, very happy authors. Uh, that, so in my book's doing well. I've learned that the publishing industry is really changing rapidly and that there's great opportunities for people who want to uh, protect and keep control of their own intellectual property. And, and then keep also the rewards of that. 
rather than having it uh, given over to control to a traditional publisher. Peter, thanks for taking time out of your day and your busy schedule helping others fulfill their dreams of writing books and being on my show. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure, Tommy. I enjoy your show and your podcasts, and you're doing a great job. Thank you so much for that. Listeners, please follow me on Instagram at Before the Lights Podcast. And if you'd like to buy me a glass of wine, well, then go beforethelightspod.com slash donate. Click on that and enter in any amount you would like to buy me a glass of wine would be greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. And until next time, everybody, I salute a chin chin. <laughs>